Well, looks like it's up to me then. The only way to heal the divide between black and Jewish people in this country is for me to do a podcast. Nope. Oh, hell no. Good luck sitting this one out. Come on. Who better to explain the plight of historically marginalized religious and cultural groups than an agnostic white male? Literally anyone. This is the story of a political pundit Who looked at the world around him and just said, fuck it Gives the middle finger to authority and says, kiss my ass But instead of a revolution, he started a podcast Just what the world needs Another basic white guy who started a podcast But it's fun because he curses Unfucking the Republic is brought to you by over-caffeinated members, W. Jeremy D., William N., Tony, Sultan, Specker, Ryan F., Rodrigo G., Rob Nasby, Prof. G., and Pete M. We begin with the conflict between Jews and blacks in America. The tension in the United States has been growing more and more over the last few years. From events like the Crown Heights riots to the dissension over issues like affirmative action and Zionism and black separatism, the two groups have found themselves at odds. Everything old is new again. This is Charlie Rose's introduction to a conversation between Cornell West and Michael Lerner in 1995. That's more than a quarter century ago, and we're having much the same dialogue today, though the language has devolved as our media landscape circles the bowl of intellectualism. So we're nearly 28 years from this conversation, which was about 28 years from what can be viewed as the original fracture between the progressive Jewish movement and the rise of the black power movements in the United States. Older generations are experiencing deja vu with the specific reemergence of tensions between black and Jewish identities in America. Younger generations are being introduced to these tensions that older generations hoped were dormant, but they're receiving this information in less contextual ways. Then again, it's hard to tell if there's a right or wrong way to have these conversations. In the 1960s and in the 1990s, these conversations were happening in the national media, and it still didn't prevent a spillover into the streets. They might have been more carefully curated conversations in a more controlled environment, but like I said, it didn't mean that it fostered more productive dialogue between black and Jewish people. The difference today is that the supposed democratization of the media has allowed these conversations to take root in dark and disaggregated places. Kanye West, or Ye, might have brought them to the surface, but they were happening already, in uncontrolled, unmoderated spaces with little to no historical context. How or if this will translate to blood in the streets is yet unknown, or perhaps only a matter of time and the wrong spark. For the moment, Ye seems to have both ignited and suppressed the fire by taking the conversation into taboo territory, proclaiming his admiration for Adolf Hitler. Provoking the Jewish community with anti-Semitic language was dangerous on many levels for all of us. And because of his position in pop culture, it was terrifying for Jews in this and other countries. But he veered into such radical hate speech territory so quickly that the only outlets available to him and his new white supremacist sidekick Nick Fuentes are far-right conspiracy influencer vlogs. That's about all the time that we're going to spend on Ye because it benefits literally no one to propagate his vitriol. But I want to play one brief clip to illustrate something chilling. In an interview with Proud Boys founder Gavin McGinnis, who has been essentially deplatformed everywhere but Elon's garden of hate, 
McGinnis tries to corner the rapper by asking if there's any use for Jews in society. Now forget his answer. I want you to listen to the reaction. Jews should work for Christians. I'll hire a Jewish person in a second. If I knew they weren't a spy and I could look through their phone and follow them to their house and have a camera all in their living room. <laughs> I realize this venue was primed for this type of response, but it demonstrates a level of insensitivity that surrounds the Jewish people in this type of commentary. A shockingly casual anti-Semitic response to a shockingly virulent anti-Semitic statement. Throughout the media and cultural landscape, it continues to be safe to peddle in anti-Semitic tropes, despite the prevailing narrative that no one is allowed to criticize the Jews. And early in my career, I learned that there are two words in the English language that you should never say together in sequence. And those words are the and Jews. In all sincerity, it is fraught territory to weigh in on this issue, having no agency in either camp. But I'm hoping that my perspective as an outsider allows me to serve as a reliable narrator on another perspective that's getting lost in the discourse. In order to reach this point, we're going to have to move carefully through an incomplete but important history of the Jewish and black relationship in America from the civil rights era forward. We'll address where Israel fits into the discourse and the origins of the pro-Palestinian support in parts of the black community. And I'll be leveraging the work of different thought leaders in both communities to highlight their respective feelings and beliefs. Now, before we dig in, a couple of notes. First off, I have two goals for this episode. One is to contextualize the issue so we can go below the headlines and have a more productive and informed conversation going forward. Now, that's not unusual for us, of course. But the other goal is to point out something that I find rather obvious, but I don't hear enough about. And hopefully I can make my case by the end. Now, what's slightly different about this is that I'm going to be moving through this solo and offering space for Manny, 99, and our listeners to weigh in separately. This is going to sound like a shitty white liberal thing to say, but the journey of these two communities is extremely important to me because they personify and illustrate the socioeconomic power dynamics in America in the most profound way possible. So much of what you're going to hear is my process, but out loud. I'm forging conclusions in real time and working through this so it might be meandering at times and messy at others, but all in service of exploring this issue with empathy, objectivity, and sensitivity. UNFTR is also sponsored by over-caffeinated members Cringy, Joa, Gwookie of Ohio, Goat, Eric Wagner 101, David MJ, Corey S, Cindy S, Bricks, Brian, Awesome A, Alfie and Flash, and Asshole. Chapter 1. The Ties That Bind Us Together. The torch-wielding white nationalists coming face-to-face... -face a demonstration by white nationalists at the white University of Virginia white in Charlottesville. White lives matter! White lives matter! White lives matter! There's a saying in journalism, don't bury the lead. Meaning, say what you mean up front, then go about supporting it. Because you don't want your point to get lost. Well, for me, that was the lead. The chants in Charlottesville moved seamlessly between Jews will not replace us and white lives matter. That's the subtext that's missing in the conversation about black people and Jewish people today. In any conflict, it's important to ask who stands to gain the most from it. And in this case, it seems perfectly clear. So let's go back. 
back to when the supposed Grand Alliance was at its zenith during the civil rights era. There are two iconic moments from the 60s that many came to define as the examples of black and Jewish solidarity in the United States. One is a photo of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in the march from Selma to Montgomery, walking arm in arm with white and black leaders, including Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, a prominent progressive figure in Jewish American history. The other is the murder of Southern black activist James Cheney and Jewish activists from New York, Andrew Goodman and Michael Schwerner in 1964. Their disappearance galvanized the nation, and the subsequent uncovering of the bodies and conspiracy to murder the men would be memorialized in the film Mississippi Burning. Many black and Jewish intellectuals have downplayed the significance of these moments in terms of their defining nature. It's felt by many that Jewish leaders romanticize these events, while black leaders tend to downplay them. In either case, it's most certainly reductive, but that's the nature of whitewashed history. Even if the truth lives comfortably in the middle, I think it's fair to say that relations have most certainly gone downhill since this time. The alliance in the 1960s was quite natural and forged out of necessity and like-mindedness on several issues. And those issues were equality, justice, racism, and the war in Vietnam. At this time, the interests of black and Jewish Americans were fairly aligned in socioeconomic and class terms. Jews from various backgrounds and nations had been migrating to the United States since the 1600s. The next four centuries would be punctuated by waves of Jewish immigrants coming to America for both economic opportunity and sanctuary. The largest wave was of Ashkenazi Jews, meaning Jews of Eastern European descent, after World War I. Jewish immigrants followed a very similar trajectory to most new Americans. In other words, they weren't exactly welcomed with open arms. Jews would be met with the same suspicion as most new groups and often sought refuge among their own people and culture in the ever-expanding urban centers of America with one key distinction. Jews were met with a double dose of anti-immigrant and anti-Semitic sentiments that would suppress their ability to economically assimilate as many other predominantly white cultures would do within one generation. This is a crucial element of our story. Black Americans, of course, had no origin story of their own when it came to willful migration. They were compelled by force and brutality to America. Most black Americans were unable to fully trace their roots back to a homeland. Generation after generation, through bondage and supposed freedom, black Americans would remain shackled, literally at first, then figuratively through disenfranchisement, segregation, and incarceration. As generation after generation of white immigrants to America moved from poverty to prosperity, black Americans were halted at every turn. We litigated the economic argument for this in our Economics of Racism episode. Today, Jewish Americans enjoy a higher standard of living relative to other identity groups. That's not to say there aren't Jews who live in poverty, but on balance, Jewish household income is among the highest of peer groups of race and religion. But this wasn't the case for most of the Jewish experience in the United States. In fact, most Jewish immigrants worked in horrific conditions and were relegated to the low end of brutal trades like the garment industry. Over time, they found work in other service areas of the economy, such as healthcare, education, and the entertainment industry. This is not a reinforcement of a stereotype, as these are still the industries in which Jews are most represented according to Pew employment research. These early experiences of trying to forge a path forward in a society that refused to accept them in the most visible industries help foster the modern tropes we often associate with American Jews. The liberal college professor, the doctor, entertainment agent, and so on. In many stereotypes, you can often find a kernel of truth. 
but these stereotypes often take on a life of their own and sometimes become a self-fulfilling prophecy that remains tethered to a group long after that kernel is gone. The other notable characteristic of Jewish immigrants prior to the Second World War was liberalism. Judaism is steeped in justice and equality, both in religious text and cultural tradition, far more than any other dominant monotheistic religions of the world. As such, prior to the war, cultural and religious Jews were often sympathetic to socialist and communist causes, traditions that they brought with them from Europe after the First World War. They were also a people without a homeland. There was no rallying cry at this time for Israel because there was no Israel. During the period between the two great wars, stories were leaking about Jews being subjugated and even hunted in Europe. And when American Jews looked out for empathy and support, there was one group that required no explanation of their plight. In African-American communities, Jews found solidarity and commonality. After the war, Jewish and black people in America continued to find common ground in the 1950s during the communist witch hunts that put government officials, along with several high-profile Jews in entertainment and academia, on trial in both real court and the court of public opinion. Our nation may well die. Our nation may well die. And I ask you, who caused it? Was it loyal Americans or was it traitors in our government? Before we get to the turning point in the 1960s, Let's examine the overlap of economic experiences between the two communities for a moment. Think of where Jews in this country were relegated or allowed to work and prosper in the 20th century. Entertainment, medicine, finance, and academia. Now think about the areas that black people were allowed to work and prosper, service and entertainment. The most visible grievances in the black community today where Jews are concerned is in entertainment. When we first understand that this was one of the areas of intersectionality between Jews and black people in this country, the area of our economy that they were allowed to participate in, we can more easily understand the roots of a fracture in this industry. The stubborn trope that the media and entertainment industries are controlled by Jewish people has that small kernel of historical truth that we talked about. But if anything, it's the word control that we should take issue with. Anybody in media Who's the top in that field? Anybody? A rapper in the house. Oh, there's rappers. I mean, uh, you can rap, and nothing wrong with that. But at the top of that are those that control the industry. And if you have Hollywood ambitions, Broadway ambitions, who's the top of that? same people. Jewish representation in the media and entertainment is a factor of historical legacy. Shunned from most industries, save for the few that we mentioned, Jews were able to carve out a meaningful place in just a handful of businesses. But to suggest that Jewish people have control over these industries is laughable and the perpetuation of shameless stereotypes. It's like saying enslaved black people had control over the fashion industry because they picked the cotton for garments. And yes, it's that stupid. And I'm sorry if that hits anybody's ears the wrong way. There's a more direct and logical extension of thought that we'll get into in the next section. But for now, if we carry this particular line of thinking through to a logical place, then it becomes clear why black entertainers who have the most amplified voices in today's culture have a bone to pick with the Jewish people. For decades in the entertainment industry, 
black artists were taken advantage of in stunning ways, and in some cases, it was by Jewish executives. It was commonplace for black artists to lose the rights to their work even when they thought it was protected. Every successful genre of music established by black artists was appropriated by white artists with little credit and usually no remuneration. So today, when we see prominent black celebrities like Dave Chappelle, Kyrie Irving, Meek Mill, Ice Cube, or Jay-Z dip into Jewish conspiracy territory, they're tapping into a bifurcated attitude. One is the long-held cliche that Jews have profited from their work. The other is that Jewish people paved the way for how black industry can develop. In these short verses alone, for example, Jay-Z is expressing both admiration for Jewish prosperity, but doubling down on a tired stereotype in doing so. You want to know what's more important than throwing away money at a strip club? Credit. You ever wonder why Jewish people own all the property in America? This how they did it. Financial freedom, my only hope. Fuck living rich and dying. There are so many examples of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism in black artistry, but I wanted to use someone like Jay-Z, who is a transcendent cultural touchstone to demonstrate how normalized and mainstreamed these sentiments are. We like to tell ourselves stories and fables about people and groups who defied the odds. It's what makes stories like Motown so important. But these stories are often sold as the norm rather than the exception to the rule, like claiming we're in a post-racial period because Barack Obama was president, or economic justice has been achieved in the entertainment industry because Jay-Z is a billionaire. In this way, these stories aren't helpful because they obscure the reality on the ground, and the reality for black artists in America has been and remains historically diminished relative to their white counterparts. All of this is not to suggest that Jewish people as a rule are or were in any way responsible for this phenomenon. Participants, to an extent, but we need to eliminate absolutist rhetoric on all sides to move forward with productive dialogue. And with all that said, let's move into the 1960s, the inflection point in the narrative. Rounding now today, UNFTR is sponsored by over-caffeinated members, Nathan Surst, Nathan E., Nettie Hugger One, Michelle H., Matthew, Marco F., and the memory of Nettie McGee. Chapter 2. The Lies That Pull Us Apart I don't know what most white people in this country feel, but I can only include what they feel from the state of their institutions. I don't know if white Christians hate Negroes or not, but I know that we have a Christian church which is white and a Christian church which is, which is black. I know, as Malcolm X once put it, that the most segregated hour in American life is high noon on Sunday. That says a great deal for me about a Christian nation. It means that I can't afford to trust most white Christians and certainly cannot trust the Christian church. I don't know whether the labor unions and their bosses really hate me. That doesn't matter, but I know I'm not in their unions. I don't know if the real estate lobby is anything against black people, but I know the real estate lobbies keep me in the ghetto. I don't know if the Board of Education hates black people, but I know the textbooks they give my children to read and the schools that we have to go to. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. The fragile alliance between black and Jewish activists locked in struggle against economic oppression domestic violence, and anti-war protests reached a peak in the mid-1960s. This is the brief moment in time that is taught to us in school. 
memorialized in federal holidays and days of remembrance. History recalls this as a crescendo to be celebrated, and perhaps it was. But below the surface, there were splinter movements gaining momentum and advocating more radical change and fomenting discord among the ranks of the civil rights movement. For decades, the establishment media and political apparatus have busied themselves crafting a convenient narrative for this era. First, by watering down the more radical activism of Dr. King, by portraying groups like the Nation of Islam, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, and the Black Panthers as fringe players. Then, by erasing them altogether from official narratives, left as subjects of documentaries and published works in academia. In reality, these movements were galvanizing young black Americans in significant ways that can still be found today in black art and culture. Even in the late 1960s, as the fragile civil rights alliances began to break down, the rise of these black movements were aided by Jewish intellectuals like Howard Zinn and Noam Chomsky, who promoted the work of black intellectuals like Marcus Garvey and W.E.B. Du Bois, and collaborated with figures like Kwame Ture, Angela Davis, Fred Hampton, and Elaine Brown. Leaders of the black power movement in the United States coincided with the rise of the black consciousness movement in South Africa, and it opened black Americans to the idea of a global black identity. At the same time, Jewish people were beginning to realize the profundity and potential of Israel during its defining six-day war in 1967. Here's journalist and scholar Ben Ratzkoff talking about this period. In the late 60s, um, it's a rather overdetermined moment. I mean, there's a lot of things happening at once, right? Which is that, uh, you know, SNCC is expelling its, all of its white members, right? Losing all of this funding from white Jews at the same time that it, the 67 war in Israel and Palestine, right, is happening and is shifting kind of this anti-colonial global consciousness, right? Um, at the same time that Black Panthers are like concentrating in Algeria, right? Which is like a site of solidarity with Palestine, right? So it's like this incredibly overdetermined moment of all of these different factors. Now, domestically, something else was happening in American cities, suburban sprawl. In the 1950s, the federal government worked diligently with state governments and developers to encourage the great migration from cities. Initially, white Christian veterans were given early and unconstitutional access to these developments. Then came the invention and proliferation of credit through personal lines and mortgages. Homeownership exploded throughout the 60s and 70s, and for the first time in America, Jews were gaining access to the so-called American dream. Jewish partners in the Grand Alliance didn't fare as well in this period. Redlining was still the unofficial official policy of the real estate and insurance industries. Mortgages were offered at higher rates for black buyers than white buyers. Credit cards were denied to black applicants even after the practice was made illegal by using the real estate red lines as reason for approval or denial. For the first time in modern U.S. history, one of the last economically marginalized groups was making inroads, while the other appeared to be backsliding once again. So figures like Louis Farrakhan would feed into the economic and political inequality by scapegoating the Jewish people. Not all Jewish people, he would say, just the satanic ones who control the media, education, medicine, and entertainment. They're the reason you got so little from a record deal, why you wait longer to be treated in the hospital, why you cannot access higher education, and why you are demonized in the corporate media. Like all propaganda, lies that are repeated take on an air of truth to the listener when that's all they hear. And here's where perspective matters. While leaders like Farrakhan have absolutely 
had a demonstrable impact on the psyche of some black Americans, there was the economic and political reality of the post-civil rights era that was evident to all. Jews were getting ahead, retaining their culture, rallying around a homeland. And many in the black community felt as though they had closed the door behind them. To illustrate this far more eloquently and powerfully than I ever could, I want to read a passage from one of James Baldwin's most impactful essays. Now forgive the anachronistic language, but Baldwin's words are sacrosanct and deserve to be preserved. Quote, In the American context, the most ironical thing about Negro anti-Semitism is that the Negro is really condemning the Jew for having become an American white man, for having become, in effect, a Christian. The Jew profits from his status in America, and he must expect Negroes to distrust him for it. The Jew does not realize that the credential he offers, the fact that he has been despised and slaughtered, does not increase the Negro's understanding. It increases the Negro's rage. For it is not here, and not now, that the Jew is being slaughtered, and he is never despised here as the Negro is because he is an American. The Jewish travail occurred across the sea, and America rescued him from the house of bondage. But America is the house of bondage for the Negro, and no country can rescue him. What happens to the Negro here happens to him because he is an American. Finally, what the American Negro interprets the Jew as saying is that one must take the historical, the impersonal point of view concerning one's life and concerning the lives of one's kinsmen and children. Quote, we suffered too, one is told, but we came through and so will you in time, end quote. In whose time? One has only one life. One may become reconciled to the ruin of one's children's lives is not reconciliation. It is the sickness unto death. The crisis taking place in the world and in the minds and hearts of black men everywhere is not produced by the Star of David, but by the old rugged Roman cross on which Christendom's most celebrated Jew was murdered, and not by Jews." End quote. Most critical interpretations of Baldwin now are that he was not an anti-Semite, he was anti-white Christian establishment, and to the extent that Jewish Americans had assimilated into these structures, he was critical. Here he's using language that remains difficult for many to hear even to this day, and in no way do I want to distill his words. Again, that would be heresy, but what he conveys more powerfully than perhaps anyone ever has is the sentiment in the black community that Jewish assimilation was due to whiteness and that remembering past traumas and maintaining a cultural identity is the right of any group but that these factors cannot absolve the people from the sin of whiteness in America and integrating with the white Christian systems of power. Baldwin isn't taunting anyone here, nor is he relying on tropes and stereotypes. He's merely reflecting a sentiment and identifying that which is impossible for white people of any culture, background, or religion to know about the unique black experience in America. Chapter 3. Israel Jonathan Wiseman, author of Semitism, Being Jewish in America in the Age of Trump, writes about the fracture and the alliance in sobering terms. Quote, For years now, it has been the only question in the Jewish political world. Where do you stand on Israel? The American Jewish obsession with Israel has taken our eyes off not only the politics of our own country, the growing gulf between rich and poor, and the rising tide of nationalism, but also our own grounding in faith, end quote. Wiseman's tapping into one of the most important elements of Judaic tradition, 
justice. Anyone with even the vaguest notion of Judaism knows that social justice is core to its tenets. Now, critical note here. I'm referencing the conservative and reformed religious systems and not orthodox. I'm less familiar with the practices and interpretations of Judaism in the orthodox community, though tensions between this group and the black community in urban settings certainly contributed to the divide. So to be clear, I'm speaking about the secular and more liberal religious interpretations of Judaism as prescribed in modern Jewish culture. Likewise, Wiseman is speaking a hard truth about Jewish representation in American political life, and that's the almost single-minded focus on supporting Israel above all else. Having placed the Grand Alliance in some historical context, we must push ourselves to touch the third rail. One stance on Israel has become a litmus test in today's society, and it's very much a part of the cleavage between the black and Jewish communities. It's central to the criticisms of the conspiracy documentary that Kyrie Irving shared, central to the anti-Semitic lyrics found in certain parts of hip-hop culture, and central to the divide in the Democratic Party. Of course, this has been a sticking point in the black power community for years. Non-establishment black leaders like Ture, Malcolm X, Angela Davis, and so on have been aligned with the Palestinian struggle for decades, a tradition carried on by black leftist leaders like Cornel West and only more recently adopted by younger leftists inspired by the Boycott, Divest, and Sanction Movement, or BDS, one that was core to the original policy statement of Black Lives Matter as an example. So Wiseman again explores this territory saying, quote, for young progressives on campuses across the country, Fealty to the BDS movement is just another item to check off as they make their way down the list of liberal causes. Black Lives Matter, immigrants' rights, LGBT rights, gender sensitivities, opposition to all manner of cultural appropriation, and intersectionality. Sympathizing with the oppressed is the job of the woke generation, but although Jews have been exiled, isolated, disenfranchised, and massacred since Nebuchadnezzar, we are no more due the sympathies of the left on campus than we are due special treatment in higher education admissions or workplace hiring. To the advocates of BDS, Israel's current military strength and right-wing policies negate 3,000 years of hatred." End quote. So this is the part that resonates with me personally and likely places me partially at odds with both the left and the right on the question of where do you stand on Israel? To deny Israel's right to exist in the world is to be ahistorical and ignorant. Baldwin is right to chastise Jews in the United States who use Jewish history to absolve them of abandoning issues of justice and equality and assimilating into the patriarchal white power structures. Wiseman is also right to chastise the left for denying Israel's right to exist to the extent that this sentiment lives in certain pockets of the left. So both of these truths can live together, and neither one should erase our ability to be critical of the power structures of Israel, just as we have the right to criticize the power structures in America. For many Jews in America, any criticism of Israel's treatment toward Palestinians is an indictment of Judaism. It's not. To call Gaza an open-air prison is not anti-Semitic, just as calling Hamas corrupt is not an indictment of the Palestinian people. The UN Special Rapporteur's condemnation of Israel as a, quote, apartheid state isn't an act of hate. It's a reflection of reality. But the conditions that support this view are not perpetuated by Jewish people, but rather the government of Israel. For if it were the former, then the world would have condemned the Belgian people forever for the murder of more than 10 million Congolese, Germans for the murder of 6 million Jews, and Americans for the near extermination of native people.
This ties into a persistent thread in the black power movement regarding the right of Jews to even claim a homeland in the Middle East as some sort of restitution for the Holocaust. Let me tell you a tactic of Zionism. What they do is that every time you say something, they bring out Hitler. You understand? And they make you feel scared about Hitler. Okay, if Hitler killed as many Jews as he did, then what the Jews should do is take Germany. Why you go to Palestine? The Arabs ain't did nothing to you. Wiseman picks up on the modern debate of legitimacy, noting that, quote, American Jews are still loath to see it, but the Israel diversion is proving to be a trap. Zionism, Jewish nationalism, cuts both ways, end quote. But he continues, the trap is about nationalism and must be separated from the religious, cultural, and spiritual realm of Judaism. Quote, it is Israel, they say, that is illegitimate a colonial racist state injected into the Middle East by Western powers reeling from guilt over the death of the six million. Sadly, European intellectuals say the Jews have used the Holocaust as a moral bludgeon to justify all manner of evil deeds by the illegitimate Jewish state, and for that we can have no tolerance. And that intolerance has led many in Europe and some in the American Academy and fringe left to make a dangerous leap. The Jews in our midst must either renounce Israel or suffer the consequences that they themselves have brought on. The onus is on us, end quote. In reality, the onus is on all of us to have a more rational conversation. It's important for the left to draw attention to injustices in Israel and here at home. In fact, anywhere in the world. The right certainly isn't going to do it. In fact, in the most bizarre of circumstances, Christian fundamentalists have been some of the staunchest supporters of Israel albeit for pretty shitty reasons. Again, Wiseman, quote, Christian fundamentalists saw the founding of the Jewish state and the gathering of Jews in the Holy Land as an important step toward the New Testament's prophesied Armageddon and the eventual return of Jesus Christ. The Jews might all die, slaughtered in the battle of the faithful against the faithless, incinerated in the tribulation, or left behind by the rapture, but for now they were good friends, end quote. Now, the alt-right, characterized by Richard Spencer, Nick Fuentes, Gavin McGinnis, and others, are less charitable than their evangelical soulmates. They outright deny the Holocaust and demonize Jews in every way imaginable. The vast majority of Republicans that don't fall into these buckets are largely supportive of Israel because of its position as a proxy military and intelligence outpost for the United States. It's difficult to imagine a more transactional relationship which is why most secular and reformed Jews overwhelmingly still vote Democrat, while the orthodox and more conservative Jews have increasingly thrown both donations and votes behind Republicans. Then there's the Black Splinter Group, known as the Black Hebrew Israelites, who have been preaching on street corners in the black community for decades. Much like the Nation of Islam, it has managed to galvanize a corner of the black community, and it's their words mostly that are echoed in the most visibly disturbing anti-Semitic remarks that have recently bubbled to the surface. We came to America as slaves in various other lands because we broke God's commandments. The Lord had sent Christ, the black Messiah, according to Revelation chapter one, verse 14 and 15, to die for us. He's a black man. It describes his hair, his skin color. Christians read that and go, no, although they're reading, his hair was like wool, his feet like it burned in a furnace. They've been preconditioned to hate, despise the way we look. But the message is, redemption is coming. The idea that Christ as a historical figure was indeed a person of color 
isn't exactly new. The twist by the black Hebrew Israelites is that Africans are among the true descendants of Jacob and members of the 10 lost tribes of Israel. These tribes were spread through Africa and the Middle East and purportedly assimilated and lost to history. The black Hebrew Israelites believe that they are among the lost tribes, as are the Japanese and the Native Americans, mind you, geography be damned. The central tenet of their belief is that Christ will return to earth, enslave, and then destroy the entire white race, which sounds pretty un-Jesus-like to me. And honestly, that's why I can't go much further into the history or the illegitimacy of the black Hebrew Israelites. Fighting over the providence of 10 tribes that may or may not have existed is as ridiculous to me as arguing over the legitimate claim to Muhammad by Sunni and Shia Muslims, whether Joseph Smith found gold tablets bearing the word of God in fucking upstate New York, or if Xenu brought life to planet Earth 75 million years ago in L. Ron Hubbard's space opera. Yes, I'm agnostic, I know that doesn't help, but more importantly, theocratic discussions weigh down any practical dialogue about the human condition as it is in the here and now. If your go-to move when stuck for an answer in a debate is to reference texts that were written 2,000 fucking years ago, then you have a here and now problem. Suffice to say, the Southern Poverty Law Center dubbed the black Hebrew Israelites a hate group. bringing it home. The evolutionary alchemy of James Baldwin, Malcolm X, Kwame Ture, Cornel West, and the unfortunate sprinkling of thoughts from the Hebrew Israelites and Louis Farrakhan have twisted the relationship between black and Jewish people in America into an unrecognizable and irreconcilable state. That is, if it's allowed to stand. Jewish leaders who cannot attend to the principal articles of Jewish faith amidst any criticism of its homeland are doing a disservice to the Jewish people. One can stand in support of a Jewish homeland and, in fact, admire the enduring tenacity of the Jewish people while also criticizing the far-right elements of Israeli society that actively oppress the rights of a people. As Cornel West has said, quote, Marcus Garvey was a Zionist, Du Bois was a Zionist, King was a Zionist, even Booker T. Washington urged his people to, quote, imitate the Jew. There is more to say about Israel, and in time we will get there. But it's important to highlight how black Americans have been in the vanguard in criticizing Israel. Or as Chappelle would say, We've been on that. <laughs> but this is also where influential black figures like Chappelle are getting it dreadfully wrong. Chappelle has transcended the world of comedy and taken on the status of social commentator. Through humor, yes, but his words carry more meaning than just a comedy show. His carefully crafted monologue recently on Saturday Night Live left everyone, except for Jews, wondering whether his words carried anti-Semitic undertones. The monologue has been viewed tens of millions of times online already. So this is more than a routine. It's a matter of public record, and it has altered the narrative. And his standard defense is fair, I suppose. It's just comedy. And in comedy, it's taboo to punch down, as they say. But Chappelle has indicated that as a black man in America, it's not possible to do so because the black experience in America remains firmly at the bottom. I'm not going to take issue with this, though I imagine some of my native friends would like a word. He worked this defense into the middle of the monologue by offering a solution to a problem that doesn't exist. I know the Jewish people have 
been through terrible things all over the world, but 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 you can't blame that on black Americans. You just you just can't. You know what I mean? I'm sure it appears selective to single this out, but to me, this poignantly introduces the point that I wanted to bring out in the first place. Jewish Americans were responding to a real threat from one of the most recognizable people in America, Kanye West or Ye, threatening to go, quote, death con three on Jews. And then Kyrie Irving sharing a link to a video that purportedly suggested the Holocaust never happened. I say purportedly because I wouldn't watch it. So I'm relying on reporting from the New York Times. The point is that these aren't innocuous. When prominent public figures circulate this kind of anti-Semitism, it has psychological consequences on the Jewish people, yes, but also on those who don't know their history. The headline readers, the average American. So was Irving punished? Sure. Financially and reputationally. Was Kanye punished? He's doing a fine job destroying his reputation and wealth. But look, for example, at who Kanye was rewarded by. One need look no further than the gleeful sound of Fucker Carlson introducing his big exclusive interview. But it's West's latest incarnation as a kind of Christian evangelist that brought us to his office in Los Angeles today for the interview you're about to see. As much as every word that I've uttered thus far is that of an outsider and hopefully objective observer, let me return now to the lead, as I promised, and give you some insider information. As a white man in this country, I can assure you that this most recent fracture in the Grand Alliance is music to the ears of the white patriarchal establishment that propagates and thrives by pitting the lower classes and marginalized against one another. Dave Chappelle isn't offering a fresh perspective to this conversation. He's unwittingly doing the bidding of the corporate state. The state requires this kind of animus between classes of people. Because the moment the oppressed realize that the real grand alliance in America is and has always been between white men and Christian zealots, the balance of power will shift and alter the course of the nation. It's incumbent upon Jews to reach back and open the door to empower those who have been left behind to recognize that the pillars of their faith and culture are greater than the fealty they pay to the structures of corporate power. Black Americans must resist the temptation to dismiss the Jewish experience in the world and see that the gains amassed by Jews in America are because the white Christian overlords have allowed it as a matter of convenience. It's a tenuous relationship at best that white Christians would sacrifice at the first sign of inconvenience. When Hitler's emissaries asked the attendees at the Avion Conference in 1938, who among you will take Germany's Jews? America remained silent, even though it understood the consequences of this refusal. This isn't ancient history. It's American history. A history that is stained with the blood of black people, built on the graves of the indigenous, and only recently tolerant of the Jew. Every moment of infighting among the lower and working classes of this nation, regardless of race, religion, or culture, is another protracted period of oppression that serves to benefit white men like me. Here endeth the essay.
It's the end of the episode where we used to do show notes. Now we just talk through a few things. Reflect on what was said or what we should have done instead. Oh, post-show musings. Hey, and fuckers. Welcome to post-show musings. It will be a muted post-show musings. I think Manny's going to weigh in with some thoughts. I'm sitting here, however, right now with 99 as usual. I just wanted to kind of wrap up after this and just talk through a couple of things. Before we do that, though, quick book love. This is a book that I had referenced in a prior episode that was kind of the building block for some of the thoughts in this episode by Terrence Johnson and Jacques Berlinerblau called Blacks and Jews in America, An Invitation to Dialogue, which actually ironically is sort of an inversion of the title of the book that Michael Lerner wrote during his conversations with Cornell West in the mid-90s called Jews and Blacks in America. So those two books, I think, are really important. And then the, it was actually one that 99 had given me to reference, and I really I really loved it. It's short. You can get through it very quickly, but it's, it's very punchy to the point, and I think very well written, and that's Jonathan Wiseman's Semitism, Being Jewish in America in the Age of Trump. So those were two of the book love resources that we had. And then obviously there was a lot of resources in there from um, historical clips, a lot of uh, old interviews. You can tell that I have a little bit of a love affair with James Baldwin. Uh, and I think for good reason, although everybody deserves a critical eye, especially the more time that there is and the more space there is between their original world, words and how life has changed. But I, I think what I always appreciated about Baldwin is his ability to contextualize in the moment and put a mirror I guess, reflect the sentiments of a community in a way that people could finally understand it. It was abrupt, it was, but it was also really eloquent at the same time. And I think it invited a lot of people. If you watch those old uh, interviews that he has, especially on uh, the Dick Cavett show, they're, they're, they're quite remarkable. They're quite groundbreaking. But he continued his work for many, many years after that and uh, is considered a luminary figure. I think that uh, Cornell West, more than anybody, has kind of picked up the mantle of that. But it's interesting how you see these things go in and out of fashion with the times. There's different inflection points, but we always seem to arrive somewhere around the same place, which is an unsafe place. And that's that's really the one question that I wanted to direct to you, 99, which is this idea of safety. So you and I have spoken prior to this. We spoke off mic. We spoke in preparation for this particular piece that you weren't necessarily comfortable adding to any of the like the historical narrative. This is a, a learning journey for anybody. This is a, sort of a fact-based approach. And you like, you know, there's nothing I need to add to this. A lot of this is this is and that was, and then just a marginal amount of interpretation about it. If anything, the third rail discussion is Israel, and we're going to have to continue to have those very difficult conversations in years to come on the show. But you have an experience as a Jewish person in America that, again, agency I will never have in the discussion. So as I approach this objectively and I try to approach this from a, uh, through, I guess, an outsider but critical lens, there's nothing in me that would provoke some sort of emotional response to the whole thing. But you right now in America, do you feel differently today, meaning like literally this moment in time with what has recently gone on in the news and all of the the stuff that's coming out from from Kanye and just how casual the 
these tropes are allowed to just circulate through the media and it doesn't seem to be too many people standing up for the rights of of Jews in America because, quote, the Israel question. Do you feel more unsafe today than you have at other parts in your life? Or is this just a, a continuum? Or do you feel safe? I mean, it's always a continuum, but I do feel like things are heightened right now. I think they've been heightened since... 2015, 2014. Why do you why why then? Because we had a presidential candidate who brought a lot of harmful stereotypes, tropes, ideas. He spoke the quiet part out loud and allowed the people who were thinking it to to go along with it. In general, or you as a Jewish person felt that? In general, but I think it breeded or it bred rather this even, I mean, because he was always like, I love Jews. Like, you know, we love Israel. And I'm like, okay, whatever. Sure. <laughs> sure you do, sir. Mm. But because, you know, he would openly mock people with disabilities or, you know, just say all these just fucking terrible things and literally incite violence. The people who, and I'm being general, obviously, but the people who were going to go along with the shit he was saying, you know, it's only a matter of time before they arrived at this conclusion. Right. And then it just it just keep it kept going and going. And I can't remember if we just spoke about it in conversation or in a in a show notes or something about how Jews are kind of at the center of so many conspiracy theories, mm-hmm. you know, from the Illuminati to I mean, just just extrapolate from the web from there. Mm-hmm. So QAnon, people who are... Rothschilds, you name it. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, and it's all just coming to to a head, or at least it feels like it. I mean, I know it feels like it's been coming to a head for for six, seven, eight years now, but because we're getting in on literal mainstream media, like QAnon ideas being broadcast to millions of households, Mm -hmm. because Twitter is a cesspool now and that it's just... Hate speech be damned. Say whatever you want. Say whatever you want, even if you're Elon Musk. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. we just we don't have any rules anymore because free speech trumps all, you know, pardon my pun. But, you know, and free speech to them means speech without consequence, which isn't what it should mean. But do I feel safe? I mean, sure. We live in New York. There's more Jewish people here than probably any other state maybe i'm not sure what the numbers are there's, i think there's more than in israel yeah so i know that i mean and not in all places i mean it's not often that or not unoften unoften it's not un- infrequent mm-hmm. that i could walk somewhere and see a swastika or some shit or just some fucking vile garbage are you aware of your jewishness in because you know part of the part of under part of what i think Baldwin and others have been helping to identify in the various black movements is that in America, like he used to tell the story about why he went to France and he went there to not be black. And it was the first time in his life. And he said, I could have picked anywhere on the map. And he throws out literally any any place in the world, including Timbuktu. And I feel like I would have been more comfortable there because I was not black. I was James this is the only place in in the man travel the world where he was all 24/7 aware of his blackness. So in that same vein, there are so few Jews on this planet that I, you know, I guess I wonder you can yes assimilate 
from a, a an appearance perspective and become part of the white culture in the United States, fine. And hopefully I did a good enough job explaining why that wasn't just a given. That wasn't automatic. It was it took way longer than every other group that came to this country to actually gain some sort of economic footing in this country. But do you carry that now as somebody who is rooted in here and now? Do you carry this idea of being Jewish with you constantly? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just before I get there to your point of assimilation, because I'm reformed Jew, I can assimilate. But people who are conservative Jew, conservative Jewish or Orthodox or Hasidic, they can't. If they're following their true religious beliefs, you know, they're going to wear they're going to cover their hair or they're going to wear wigs or they're going to wear the hats. And um, forgive me for not knowing the the name of the, the specific hat. You know what I'm talking about? The big fuzzy one. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know the name. Do you? No. no? Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like it somewhere in my brain, but I can't. I can't dig it out. But yeah. Okay. I, it's not helping that you're wearing a big fuzzy hat right now. No, I am. I'm wearing a <laughs> Sherpa bucket hat. It's not a Sherpa bucket hat. It's freaking adorable. Thank what you. It is. I was really excited. Uh, today's my debut of the hat. It's it. You're. It's a rocking hat. And as I told you before, I I don't mean to trivialize your appearance right now, but. Between the Sherpa bucket hat, is that mm-hmm. what it is? And the overalls, it's like super cute, but it looks really cold because no. it's like 20 degrees out. I'm okay. You sure? Yeah, I'm fine. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. But yeah, Must I can- be it- that thick Jew skin of yours, <laughs> yes, right? Is of that course. what it is? Isn't that one of the- uh- Right? Things, not one, of, that, not one that I've heard. Oh, you haven't heard that? <laughs> no, no. Maybe no? that's what you people talk about <laughs> behind our backs. <laughs> but um, yeah, I can assimilate. But a lot, you know, probably I don't know what the breakdown is of, you know, Reformed Jews versus conservative Orthodox Hasidic Jews. But probably, I mean, that's three, three groups versus one reform. So mm-hmm. probably, I don't know, maybe more. But do I feel my Jewishness? Yes. Especially it's December. We're 10 days away from Christmas. Everything is red and green. Everything is Christmas, 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 Christmas shoes. Keep Christ and Christmas. Christ, yeah, Christ. That's what is. That's what we call him. Uh, I was at a. I went to a show the other day, and one of the the hosts was singing. What? I know. Yeah, it was a that's podcast weird. show though. Uh, the host was singing a, like a Christmas song, and I was with my friend, and I was like, I don't, I don't know what this is, and she was like, it's Christmas shoes, and I was like, oh, I don't fucking know. She knows the words to every Christmas song, and I'm like, do they teach you this? Where do you learn this? Because there's so many songs where I'm like, the other day I was questioning if I knew the words to Frosty the Snowman. <laughs> so this time especially, I was actually talking to uh, Bobby McD because he will he'll, we'll message back and forth, and he asked me if I was looking forward to the holidays, and I was like, uh, honestly, I mean... Hanukkah is not a high holiday anyway, and I've always found Christmas to be kind of lonely. I mean, I used to, when I was a kid, I would go to like my best friend's house for Christmas, but it's like, you know, you think about nearly everyone in the world, a day of like gathering and family and celebration and love. And it's like, you know, not that I'm not with my family, but there's just like a weird eeriness, like a weird stillness. Like when you go outside on Christmas Eve and it's dead silent. Do you go to a Chinese food restaurant? Uh, not, we don't. Have you ever done that on Christmas? Of course. I mean, they're literally the only people open. Like that's, (laughs) and you know, so yeah, we, we, of course we've, we've given into the, the, uh, the trope (laughs) now and again, but there's nothing else to do, but it's also just a regular day. We get Chinese food days that aren't Christmas, but, uh, yeah, it's very prevalent right now. And, you know, I've thought about like, 
when I was younger, I, I, I was like, maybe, you know, girls I went to middle school and high school with, like, they would wear a Jewish star. And I was like, maybe I'd get one and, like, be proud of my Judaism. But I was also kind of scared. Mm. Every time I think about it, I'm like, I don't know that I want to be walking around right now. <sighs> it's scary. I remember after... Um, what happened in Charlottesville, I was going to a festival that year in Virginia, like the town over. And I remember my dad being like, be careful. They don't like Jews there. And I was like, I mean, I'm not walking around with a sign that says like I'm Jewish, but it was definitely on my mind being mm -hmm. there. Like you just never fucking know. Hate crimes happen for no reason anywhere. And so, yeah, it's, it's a scary time. That was the thing about time. the Charlottesville clip that really stood out to me uh, because my memory is such that it was just a an anti-Black Lives Matter rally, but it was just as much an anti-Semitic rally. But that wasn't the narrative. That that wasn't the narrative that persisted thereafter. Charlottesville, I think, is seen as a demonstration of white nationalism, but strictly from a race perspective. Mm -hmm. But it was much more. In fact, equally so. Yeah, I mean... The the thing that gets me and that I've I've talked about before is just the the erasure of Judaism in the context of erasing hate and stopping hate and you know, like when there was the rise in attacks of AAPI people, you know, every brand you knew was putting out a statement, you know, to stop AAPI hate. Not not to be contrarian or anything. I think they should do that. But it's like there's a right. There's been a consistent uptick in anti-Semitism since tr Trump took office mm -hmm. six plus years ago. Where's where's the stop that? And like I said, it's always free Palestine. Mm -hmm. And it's like <laughs> me as this one Jewish person. I didn't do anything. <laughs> I'm not saying I support it. So it's just like it I think that was a, a really interesting takeaway from from Wiseman saying it as directly as he did in the book, saying We've done ourselves a disservice by having a single-minded focus on supporting the state of Israel and looking the other way at the political machinations of the alt, what is really the alt-right in Israel that has been in power for, for several years now. And by making it inexorable to the Jewish experience in America, through all of the organizations, I actually took a piece out that I was going to quote as a larger piece where he kind of ticks off all of the not all, a number of very high profile Jewish organizations that existed to do different work. So one was about equity, another was about feeding the homeless, another was this and that, and tracked how their mission over the last 10 years has completely flipped to everything is in service of donating to Israel first and foremost, and then we'll also worry about feeding the poor. He said that single-mindedness is doing us a disservice because now we can't have a broader discussion. So we need to take ownership and responsibility for that with these organizations to get back to the core, again, the, the core articles of faith that made us who we are as a, as a people that have always fought for social justice issues. Like, and I guess, you know, for him, and I, and I saw this in a number of, I could have pulled a thousand different interviews with, with, different, uh, with, with different rabbis and faith leaders in, in Judaism saying our whole, I mean, literally every word out of our mouths and every deed and every everything that we rely on to define our faith and our culture is about equity and social justice and doing and and humanity 
that's our brand. Mm -hmm. And yet we look like now the monsters and and that's a big problem. Like they're, they don't want to be branded with it. And at the same time, it is completely ahistorical to say to a people, you have no right to a homeland after because you can't ignore history. And that's where I that's where, again, I diverge a little bit with the with the modern thinking of like, well, that was then and this is now. No, that was always. And this is now this is a hangnail on the whole body of the Jewish experience through world history. And so we do have to stand by and support the efforts for that. But man, the Likud party and the, the, and the, and the radical right in Israel have co-opted the mechanisms of government and the, I think the illegal settlements and the occupation issue is not going to go away. In fact, this new administration that's coming in again under Netanyahu, Chris Hedges put out a great piece about all of the the alliance that he's forging essentially with all of the other um, with all of the other parties, the leaders from those smaller marginalized parties that are going to have a seat in the new government because he has to craft an alliance in order to be able to govern, are some of the scariest people who have ever had a seat in power anywhere. So not just an Israeli identity, but these are people that have like literally been identified as some of the most uh, virulent and hateful people in society today. And they're going to be leading the government along with Netanyahu. So it's not going to get better over the next couple of years for sure. And at the same time, we're having really awful conversations here in this country between two groups that kind of stop hurting each other because that's what the white guys want. But is it reciprocal is my question. Like, can we, and I don't mean to sound insensitive, but like, can we track a through line of Jewish people coming out in the same way against black people in, in modern times today? Yeah, in the 90s. In the 90s, which is still close enough to be culturally relevant, I think, to a lot of people. So in Crown Heights and the riots that bro- broke out. But again, the Orthodox community. Painted with the same brushes, the reformed Jews, conservative Jews, what have you. It's just the Jews from New York City and this all and and it was Washington Heights, Crown Heights, and then also uh, the conflicts that happened. I think about a year later in the Jewish community in Los Angeles. So, yeah, terrible acts of racism and violence. And as Baldwin pointed out in in the initial, there's a lot of work that Baldwin had had done writing about his experience with Jewish people growing up in Harlem at that time. Most of the landlords and the business owners in Harlem were Jewish because, again, that's where they were allowed to own things. Mm-hmm. And so, they, as he said, these were the people who collected the rents from us, who sold us our grocery, who sold us our our stuff from the general store or whatever, whatever you wanted to do to live in a commercial society in the very small world that was Harlem usually involved a Jewish proprietor who would then live in another part that was a lot nicer than what Harlem was. So he said, you know, his relationship and many of the the kids growing up there, their relationship was that they understood Jews to extract, simply extract and then take it somewhere else. And what he was saying through that is that's not a fair assessment of the Jewish people, that it, that was not okay for us because there was a reason that they were excluded from other parts of society and had to wind up there. So in their exclusion, we wound up being sort of his version of what they were in the world was completely misrepresented, but it was his version. 
so by his his explaining that is a way to say that the economic relationship between blacks and Jews because of the way that both of their communities were kind of thrust together and ghettoized for most of the experience prior to suburban sprawl meant that there was a legacy of uh, resentment from one group toward the other because one was economically more powerful in those situations than the other. So you have a little bit of that. That's historical. Then you have the Orthodox community and the black community come at, at odds and really reaching a fever pitch in the 90s, which is why they were having those discussions in the first place. And today, it's the alignment with the Palestinian cause. That's where I'm like, okay, I don't know where that's coming from. Who's fanning the flames behind this? And that's where I asked the question at the beginning. Well, who stands to gain from this? So my thesis here is essentially that it's really, really good for the establishment to continue to poke the bear. And my guess is that if you look online and if you look at the dark corners of the internet and if you look at the funding behind a lot of these tropes and anti-Semitic views that are out there, that the origin of it can probably be traced back to somebody who looks a lot like me and maybe not like Kyrie Irving. That's kind of my working thesis here is that there's this is very intentional. I don't know. No, I'm. my question was, you know. Does it go the other way, right? Kind of. Right. Do you see. The 90s, I mean, that's 30 years ago. Right. Like what's happening right. R- right now. I could log on anywhere as we speak. And that's why I think that the, the so the answer, the answer is probably no. There, Jews are not in a place where they're, they're shitting on the black community. That's, that's not what's happening today. And that's why I'm saying, I'm answering you by saying, I think they're dredging these things up from the past that were real and visceral and have a cultural relevance to how the younger people today were brought up because you say, yes, it's 30 years ago, but that means that these young kids today who are looking for these conspiracies and still hearing them on the street corners from the black Hebrew Israelites, still hearing them from the nation of Islam because that's very active, have those stereotypes in their minds being reinforced by what their parents and their grandparents' experiences were. So, okay. Who's fanning these flames today and giving more voice to those people, to those voices that are are the most virulently opposed to to Judaism and Zionism? I just feel like it's guys that look like me that are just that are owning the experience. So it's not happening in real time. So you've got real situations in the 60s, real situations in the 90s, but they're making shit up today. It's happening on dark corners online and it's not real. Yeah, I was... Before I asked that question, you had said something like two groups that need to stop hurting each other. So that's why I asked the question because. Yeah, yeah no, I understand. And yeah. I wanted to, because if it is happening the other way, then it's also something we should air out and not just be like, well, this is only happening to one people. So my question wasn't to, you know, ac- accuse, but yep. to open that door because it's probably something that needs to be explored as well. And I think it's a it's more implied than it is overt. So this idea, again, of you made it out and I didn't, it's a re- it, there's a resentment to it. It's a very real resentment. And so where's the hand back? Where's the hand up? Where's the lift? Why, why isn't there more solidarity, more solidarity, more consistently between us? What form does that take? I don't know. I don't know what the ask is. I'm just putting a finger on the source of the resentment and why it might be continued to be fanned 
today, right? But I don't I don't think it is I don't think that there is a, a mass action or belief among Jews that they need to subjugate black people. And that's where I think, you know, where Chappelle was coming from in that sketch was like what was was funny and just glossed over a lot of people to me was just like, fuck it. What are you doing? Why? Nobody's nobody's actively doing that. That's not a thing that's happening in the world. Why would you single out Jewish people well, for Lauren doing Michaels that? Michaels is Jewish and he loaded on the air. So it's not racist. Right. Right. And John Stewart came to his defense and other Jewish comedians I saw that have, you know, it came to his defense. A lot of people did. Yeah, there was a whole thing online of like, you're making us look weak. Don't be whiny. It wasn't. And I'm like, fuck uh, it's you. It's so fraught. Yeah. I <laughs> argued with someone who I loosely know. and I, Not argued because I reacted to their story about it on my Instagram, which is my burner account, which because I don't have like a personal Instagram. So I have a fake one where I just follow like artists and stuff so just to to clarify because i've probably mentioned before that i don't have instagram and i want people to think i was lying so it's my fake account it's my finsta but Mm -hmm. i don't post anything so i reacted to it so again i look like a bot because i have like no posts (laughs) like four followers and like i follow like three thousand people 99 bot yeah but um i was like like come on man like this is not it because if someone's offended by it you're just fucking shitting on your fellow man here like don't drag other Jewish people down for finding this offensive. Because can we go a fucking day? It was like, <laughs> really, man? After DeathCon 3, you're going to just fucking do this? Like, why? And you're absolutely right about it being people who look like you. I mean, Alex Jones. Mm-hmm. Uh, every fucking platform that Kanye has appeared on, and I hate that we're even giving him so much airtime, but I understand it's core to what's happening. But yep. like... Every platform, it's all white people, mm-hmm. and they all they all do the loosely veiled like, well, you don't, you know, oh come and like they try to pretend like they're reeling it back, like they're loving it, yeah, and they're like they're trying to be like giving him an out just to give themselves an out, like they like they tried, mm-hmm. but they know exactly what they're mm-hmm. doing. We all know that, mm-hmm. so of course it's you know, it's all ugly, yeah, and it's just like. He, uh, Conspirituality, a podcast I've mentioned before, did a really good episode about it recently, so I can link that in show notes. Better than this one? Uh, different. <laughs> <laughs> More about Kanye and just a general overview of that and some other things and kind of what's happening with social and Twitter and all that stuff. But I guess we'll, uh, we can throw it to many faces at some point and have him weigh in with his feedback. Yeah, let's uh, do that now, and you and I will record the closer, and he can put that on in the back end. Magic. Just that's the magic of this game. Hey, my own musings are probably as long as y'all's, but I'll try to be as brief as possible. Uh, I will say that I was a bit hesitant to even muse, as I felt that despite the fact that I confidently claim hip-hop as my culture and hip-hop was evoked, and the fact that I do have really deep ties with the black community, as it were, and the fact that nearly all of my 72 children are half-black, I, myself, am still not a black voice, and in this discussion, it'd be just another non-black voice attempting to parse blackness. But I suppose those connections do allow me some insight, and since I'm here, fuck it. Max, I just want to say you did a great job laying out the historical relationships between black people and Jewish people in America. You spoke about times when they weren't together, and then when they were, and a bit about why they're no longer joined at the civil rights hip. 99, I appreciate your perspective and empathize with how all of this must make you feel. No one should ever be made to feel threatened or unsafe or unloved based on the religion they follow. And I too find the uptick in anti-Semitism in this country troubling. 
And having Jewish friends and loved ones, I'm certainly more concerned these days than I've been in the past for many of the reasons, 99, that you mentioned in post-show musings. I also find it very troubling that so many people today are placing black people at the center of the current rise of anti-Semitism. Despite the unfortunate activities of a few prominent black folks recently, I very much think this is distracting us from the root of the problem. For all the reasons stated in this episode, it's clear why there's been so much animosity toward the Jewish community by the black community in the last 75 years or so. As Max said, in black communities, Jewish people once found solidarity and commonality. But once Jewish people achieved their goal of near parity with non-Jewish white society, that seemed to be the end of any such union. And so frustrations and stereotypes originally based in those ugly kernels of truth that you talked about, Max, seeded by figures like Malcolm X, Kwame Ture, and Farrakhan, etc., were amplified over the years as black folks felt that maybe their welcoming people-in-arms alliance had been taken advantage of. Because at the heart of it all, I just don't think black folks have a problem with Jewish people for being Jewish. Max, you pointed to Baldwin's brilliant words, which should be all we need to hear. Black people have a problem with white supremacy. And white people are the ones who perpetrate that ill onto society. And Jewish people fought long and hard to be seen not only as Jewish, but as equal to white. And by and large, they succeeded. And many have done well and are, in fact, powerful and influential. So these days, unless there's a major visible campaign by the Jewish community to help lift up their former grand allies, I imagine they're seen to have just simply morphed into being part of the problem. And again, I'm trying hard not to seem like I'm particularly qualified to speak for black folk, but I know many might ask, after all, where was the support from the Jewish community when Michael Brown was killed by police in Ferguson? When Eric Garner was killed by police in Staten Island, when Sandra Bland was found dead in police custody, when 12-year-old Tamir Rice was killed by police. And sure, that's a bit unfair. For instance, a whole bunch of rabbis and Jewish leaders were arrested after leading a protest in New York City against the killing of Eric Garner. But in this day, when news rarely reaches those it needs to, it's no wonder these sentiments still exist. But I I still feel it's not anti-Jewish as much as it's anti-white supremacy. The kind of thing that's amplified when Gabby Petito goes missing and gets wall-to-wall news coverage, but not when Shanquella Robinson dies under mysterious circumstances in Mexico. Or countless black girls, or as we learned from our Newsbeat Cross episode drop, indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people go missing every year. Now sure, Jewish people don't control the media. Good point. But Max, as you pointed out, the representation has always been there. Until his recent departure, CNN's president was Jeff Zucker, a Jewish cat. Now, when he doesn't say, hey, we need more coverage of missing black people, too, I imagine older black folks who can remember the Grand Alliance days might ask, where's that solidarity that Dr. King and Rabbi Heschel exemplified? You know, the solidarity we gave you when you needed it. Like, when a quarter of all NFL teams are owned by Jewish folk and none of them hire Colin Kaepernick, black people will see any solidarity between these former allies as long, long gone. The only difference today is that one of those groups has way more billionaires. So for better or for worse, that's the kind of things that black people see and try as they might to deviate from long-standing tropes. Sometimes when looking for answers as to why they're still not being treated fairly in America, they get sucked back in. So is this true anti-Jewish bigotry or just more like, what happened? I thought we were cool. Ye isn't the only one criticizing quote-unquote Jewish-owned media. Rupert Murdoch did it in 2012. He's not black. By and large, I would say that black people simply want equality, not at all to harm or kill Jewish people or anybody that they deem part of the oppressive class. That's more for the folks that marched in Charlottesville. They weren't black either. Neither was the gunman who killed 11 worshippers at the Tree of Life synagogue. 
So to Max's larger point, even with a lot of misinformation and anti-Semite propaganda sadly having taken root in the black community over the decades, and loudly recently, I also figure there's got to be folks fanning these flames of black versus Jewish conflict. It's easy, for example, to see how they do it. They manipulate a media ecosystem that has long enjoyed shoving a camera and a mic in front of a man who wasn't very good at off-the-cuff commentary when he wasn't dealing with mental health issues. <laughs> and that's all part of the distraction. After all, Ye may have some platform, but he's no fucker Carlson, who repeatedly peddles the Great Replacement Theory to millions of adoring Fox News viewers, stoking way more anti-Semitic fervor in America than FKA Kanye West ever did or could. And in fact, let's keep it 100. A ton of black folks stopped paying attention to Ye years ago when he suggested that slavery was, quote, a choice. And then even more recently when he suggested that Derek Chauvin's knee wasn't the cause of George Floyd's death. So if anyone thinks he's in any way able to rustle up black folk for some anti-Jewish crusade, it just shows they're not that in touch with black folks' complicated and current feelings about Ye. The people listening to him and agreeing with him to the extent that they might want to do something harmful to Jewish people were already thinking that. And by and large, they ain't black. Now, to be clear, I'm not defending Ye or Kyrie or any of that. I am fully against anti-Semitism in any form, period, just as I'm fully anti-racist. But I also understand that there are nuances that affect the way people see each other and that these ideas often aren't independent thought. So, like Max, I'm really interested in finding out who's injecting folks with these ideas. For example, in one of my keynote talks, I demonstrate how the negative public perception of hip-hop, and by extension many of its participants, have been fueled by media and corporate interests. But it doesn't reflect the true ideals of the culture or the brilliance found within it. Characteristics that I feel can actually help uplift all of humanity. I explain to folks who are under the impression that hip-hop is nothing more than homophobic or misogynistic or anti-Semitic or violent drivel, that first, hip-hop is no more homophobic or misogynistic than your church is, and no more anti-Semitic or violent than America itself, and that all of these characteristics existed in America long before rap music was ever a thing. And second, I mean, a rap album won a Pulitzer a couple years ago. Hip-hop is being used in schools, successfully increasing student engagement and academic output, in mental health settings, helping young people cope with trauma and grief, in science and technology, creating an avenue to connect young people to STEM fields where schools have failed to do so. And y'all know my other show, Newsbeat, using hip-hop as journalism to help shine light on injustice. So anyone who looks at hip-hop and just sees violent drug music just isn't looking very hard. In similar ways, for example, by way of a racist criminal justice system and centuries of biased media coverage, black folks are perceived by many white folks as having criminal tendencies as a part of their very nature. When, of course, that's not true. And we've been examining traditional stereotypical Jewish tropes this entire episode. So pretty much everyone is a victim of some kind of stereotypes which tend to foment division and fear and misunderstanding and mistrust and conflict. But to be fair... Black folks do occupy a particularly despised, ultra-marginalized space in America that no one else really comes close to. Perhaps Native Americans, as Max stated, but America has been able to push them largely out of sight, out of mind. Black people have to face the full racist force of America every second of every minute of every day, out in the open. So while I agree with 99, the Christianization of America is so off-putting for folks of other religions, it's nothing compared to the constant soul-crushing pressure and resulting trauma of having to navigate America with unremovable, full-time, on-full-display blackness. And look, I'll be 100% honest. I don't like swastikas, Nazis, or any of that shit either. But with all due respect, white people, including Jewish folks, just don't have to worry about their unarmed 12-year-old sons being gunned down by police within two seconds after they roll up. I do. 
And I don't want anyone to be harmed for their beliefs, their color, their lifestyle, anything. But as the parent of black children, I can promise Jewish people that their day-to-day fears, while fully warranted, are not the same as mine. They're not the same as other parents of black children. I promise. And when I look out across the land, I see far less protection, far less opportunity, far less tolerance, and far less love out there for my black children than there is for everybody else's. And no one wants to compare oppressive points, okay? But we often do. Max, your comment about natives being just as bottom as black folks. 99 questioning who on the Jewish side lashes out towards black people as badly as Ye has done. And me here trying to flesh out my interpretation of the black perspective. It feels like everyone has to pick a side and try to win the oppression Olympics when the outrage should be equal. Which brings me to Chappelle. Max, you know, I kind of disagree with you on this. I don't think he's getting things dreadfully wrong, nor do I think his only defense is, but it's comedy. I think a lot of people say that's his defense, and we keep missing the bigger point. If we're going to pick clips from him, here's one. That I have never had a problem with transgender people. If you listen to what I'm saying, clearly, my problem has always been with white people. (laughs) His issue has always been with white people. Particularly, ironically, white liberals. Because, he believes... They've mastered the art of selective outrage. They decide what's offensive and what isn't, who should be canceled and who shouldn't, as it were. So to him, and many black people who undoubtedly agree, God forbid after making jokes about black people and poor people and even white people and every other group imaginable for years with no ramifications, you make a joke today about gay or transgender people or about Jewish people. The backlash for that will be fierce and unrelenting. But they'll wonder... Where has that outrage been in regards to continual, overwhelming, systemic, and insidious travesties that have been plaguing black communities forever? You know, why did it take George Floyd for a lot of y'all to say anything? And are y'all still helping fight that fight? Or has it gone back to white business as usual? On October 8th, 2021, the Wall Street Journal reported that Oakland Raiders coach John Gruden had made racist remarks in internal emails. He kept his job. Three days later, the New York Times reported that there were more emails, this time homophobic. An hour later, he resigned. Now, sure, it might be the quantity, not the substance, which broke the proverbial camel's back, but the optics here don't go unnoticed by black folk. And that, to me, is the through line of Chappelle's multi-special spiel. It's not as simple as him being transphobic or anti-Semitic or picking fights with those communities just to not be held accountable for telling jokes about them. I believe to him it's about the hypocrisy and the double standards from a social justice standpoint. And yeah, he's going to taunt those communities when they come out against him because to him, they just keep proving that larger point. 99 says she doesn't feel like there's been enough response to the uptick in anti-Semitism since Trump became a thing. That's very true. That's very fucked up and it needs to change. But black folks are like, welcome to our world. There's never not been an uptick in anti-black rhetoric or racist violence in America. And there's never been enough response. We can barely get y'all to respond when we get killed. And to Max's point, who's going to back the Jews? The white Christian zealots who, as he says, only barely tolerate them for convenience? Not likely. And to Dave Chappelle's point, Ye and Kyrie aren't our representatives. Don't make black folk the scapegoat for the current state of anti-Semitism. Look, black people are keenly aware that billions of dollars go to Israel and Ukraine, but that there's no drinking water in Flint, Michigan and Jackson, Mississippi. That billions are spent to illegally drone strike brown-skinned people in other countries and millions are spent to over-police brown-skinned people in ours. They are keenly aware of their blackness 24-7 in a country that is constantly aware of it right back. 
Yeah, Hasidic Jews do wear their religion on their sleeves <laughs> and their fuzzy hats. But they can do that without worrying that their hats will stop them from being approved for a mortgage or a business loan. They don't have to worry that their payos will increase the likelihood of them or their children becoming a victim of state-sponsored violence. So we could talk about psychological damage over the threat of DEFCON 3. Fair. But we're also talking about centuries of actual psychological and physical and legal damage from USA. The trauma is exponentially worse for black Americans. The resulting inequalities are vast and painful and continuous. The lack of that acknowledgement is what fuels a lot of this sentiment. The day I was writing this, five Louisiana police officers were charged for negligent homicide and for lying to the family of Ronald Green, a black man. He died at their hands while being arrested. They told the family he died in a car accident. The same day, a white officer was convicted of manslaughter of a Tatiana Jefferson, a black woman shot in her home in Texas in front of her eight-year-old nephew. The officer shot her from outside her bedroom window. She had done nothing wrong. And that was just that day. You know, are Jewish people as outraged about these cases as they've been about Ye's latest near-incoherent babbling? Now, to be fair, also that day, the U.S. heavily criticized a high-ranking United Nations diplomat for anti-Semitic remarks made while defending Palestine. Are pro-Palestinian black folks in agreement that these kind of statements go too far? In both of these cases, probably not. But they should be. Because black people need white allies to be constantly fighting for them. After all, racism takes no days off. And Jewish people need black people to know that they can support the Palestinian cause, be against the oppressive regime of Israel, and still love their Jewish neighbor. That's the place where this dialogue and these discussions need to be. But instead, we get our focus averted to this easy access, reality show style, exaggerated beef. One that has certainly had real flare-ups in the past, but is also shown to be able to coalesce under mutual respect and solidarity. So today, their relationship status is certainly marked complicated, but it's not as simple as looking at Ye or Kyrie or Chappelle as the boogeyman, or certainly blaming everything on the satanic Jewish Illuminati. As I stated earlier, and I think, Max, your final brilliant point was, the real agitators aren't black. The ones who are benefiting from and amplifying the specter of actual conflict between the two groups, they're the ones we really need to be watching out for. They're the ones who will be most harmed if actual solidarity ever was to occur between these groups. So yeah, it makes all the sense for them to help make sure that doesn't happen. Because they are the ones who are really in control. Here endeth my two cents. As always, Unfucking the Republic is engineered... What do we say? Edited and arranged by sound design maestro, Manny Faces. What's my problem? Um, Old? Yeah. Stupid. Old white. Old white guy losing his marbles. Not Jewish. That's the problem. Yeah. As always, Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by sound design maestro, Manny Faces. Unfucking the Republic is lovingly produced by the great and powerful 99. Ballons. <laughs> The great and powerful. By our resident Jew, 99. (laughs) I'm Max. I host it. That's no big deal. Resident basic white guy. I am the bad guy in this story. Don't forget it. That's the important takeaway. We're loving this. All the other things that you need to know, other than the fact that Tom McGovern produces, produces, I guess it produces, and performs all of the original music on the show, go to TomMcGovern.com because we love him. Everything else you need, go to UNFTR. Just in terms of what's coming up, we've got a phone a friend. 
we've got another show notes and we have our closing episode of the year. And we're going to take a little breaky break over the, uh, the back half of the holidays and uh, come back roaring in the new year. Until then, see you later on fuckers. Bye 99. Bye.